Let's be honest. Life's hard sometimes. We get discouraged, struggle in our faith, and it's easy to feel alone. Despite how you might feel sometimes, know that God's got your back. And so do we. Vision's prayer line team are ready to pray for whatever you're going through. Text your prayer request to 0401 132 888 and we will be praying for you. Or click prayerline at vision.org.au. That's 0401 132 888 or vision.org.au. It's another way Vision is helping you look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. At the age of just 21, our guest today fell 30 metres down a cliff. Now, he suffered major head and spinal injuries, critical blood loss, five heart attacks, a severe liver, kidney and abdominal organ damage. Whilst in a coma, his family was informed that should Stephen survive, he would be most likely to spend the remainder of his life being dependent on the welfare of others. During his eight-month hospital stay, he lost approximately 40 kilograms. His five senses were compromised and the head and nerve trauma led to compounding difficulties in communication, movement and excessive pain. Upon the discharge from this from his fourth hospital, he was confronted with the painful reality of living with injury, fear, financial insecurity and long-term unemployment. And to add to his dilemma, his head injury took away his capacity to read, write or speak and simply to process information. Constant failure, embarrassment and disappointment in his attempts to overcome these obstacles brought confusion, self-doubt and anxiety. And so hearing something of Stephen's story might prompt a question about our own selves. If we're in a situation where we're hitting rock bottom, whatever that rock bottom might mean, what do you do when you are there? How do you bounce back? Well, our guest this morning, his name is Stephen Dale. He's told his story in a monumental book called Bouncing Back When You Hit Rock Bottom. Stephen Dale, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, Stephen, it is something of a miracle that you are even sitting here in the studio with me. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, a 21-year-old young man, your life was ahead of you. There was a whole lot of circumstances that were leading up to uh, this dreadful, tragic fall, 30 metres down a cliff face. These things are never simple. There are complexities in your story. I wonder whether we can go back to that time and the things that were happening in your life in the lead up to uh, this 30 metre cliff fall, because uh, for a lot of listeners, uh, they'll be interested to hear how you are, in fact, sitting here today talking to me and with this clarity that you have. Uh, Take us back to those times. I was living down in Melbourne because I f- was afraid of every- everything and everyone, including myself. And I ran away from Brisbane to Sydney, Sydney to Melbourne, Melbourne to Tasmania, back to Melbourne, looking for who I was simply because I had lost my way in, in every way. I come from a very strong Christian home, wonderful parents, but the bullies got in my ear at high school. Instead of believing in God and believing in myself and my future, I started to believe what the bullies had to say, which led me to uh, 
Well, trying to find hope through alcohol and through drugs and that usual cliche, and all of a sudden I was becoming a different person. I found myself down in Melbourne. I was working in a pub at that particular time, which is a good place for a near-alcoholic to work. I met two guys who just happened to be good Christian fellows. I didn't like Christians. I didn't trust Christians. I had escaped Christian life. I had tried to back away from all of that. They invited me to go to Phillip Island one Saturday, and that day, the 25th of February 1989, was the day that I was going to face the consequence of everything that I'd been living. Interesting to hear that you had grown up in a Christian home and you were what I suppose we would all call these days a backslidden Christian, uh, going through those teenage <laughs> yes. years, yes. Uh, almost a rebellion against the way that you had been shaped from your childhood, uh, seeking your own identity outside of an identity that your family was yes. undoubtedly trying to introduce you to, an, an identity in God. Uh, you were looking for other identities, listening to the voices of the bullies. This is something that young people are dealing with regularly, especially yes. those who have, and so many listeners today, grown up in a Christian home and had their own experience of going outside of their parental shaping. And uh, this was your story. Yes, uh, very much so. When I arrived at high school, I had never had a hard day in my life. I'd been sick as a child, but that wasn't hard because of my, my parents. But then when I went to high school and the bullying started and I was small, and as you can see, Neil, I have big ears, which people on the, I've got a good head for radio. Um, and because of all of those things, uh, thank you, Neil, for showing me your ears. Uh, <laughs> because of all those things, when the bullying started and I didn't know what was going on, I didn't know why I was being bullied because I was such a good kid and I had not done anything wrong to these fellows. And the bullying got to such an extent where during one day I actually cried out out loud in front of the bullies, Jesus, come and help me, which was incredibly entertaining to the bullies that were there. But to me, Jesus didn't come. No angel came. And to me, I just had this belief that if I cried out, Christ would come. And he didn't come on that particular day. And I didn't know how to take that. So rather than ask about it and rather than find out and rather than discover that God's got a greater plan and that this might be part of his plan, I simply just dumped it all. This was such a disappointment and this was a daily event at school. So over a period of probably three grade 10, I went from really hanging on to Christianity and really hanging on to everything that was good to just letting it all go, repelling it all, throwing it all away, becoming a different person in the space of that one year. And by the time grade 11 came around, I was not the boy that I was when I was in grade 10. And I know from my work at the schools that those sorts of things happen to a lot of people with faith, that they don't, With as children, you don't look to the big picture. You're dealing with right here, right now. And if right here, right now isn't the immediate solution, you just lose touch. And that was exactly what happened to me. I just lost touch. And so you began to start drinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, for a young man growing up in a Christian home, uh, is the temptation. Uh, outside of my parents' care, outside of their oversight, uh, pushing the boundaries, this is partly your story too, that yes. takes you deeper into a separation. Yes, well, the thing about alcohol is that in my family, alcohol was not a welcome visitor. 
And so I had to do it on the sly. So all of a sudden I became a very deceptive person. I became a whole lot of things that I was never raised to be. I became a person who was into lying and drinking on the sly and pretending that I wasn't drunk and drinking before breakfast, which was all these things were foreign to my family. But you get into that stage and all of a sudden you start looking for someone else who's doing the same thing. You you find somebody else who has a similar burden and somebody else who says, don't worry about it, just have another drink. And all of a sudden that is the solution. And because you're a child and because you're suffering pain and you're not really willing to bring it to anybody's attention, you feel embarrassed for yourself, you go through a, a process, a very quick process of leaving behind everything that you stood for But what I was also trying to do was maintain the face of being a Christian at church. So all of a sudden, I was purposefully living two lives. And when you live two lives, one of them is going to happen. There's that old proverb, he who wears two faces will soon forget which one is real. And the one that became real for me was the drinking and the very badly behaved boy overtook the good kid that I was. And then this idea of impressing your friends, Mm. uh, of doing those things that you think will help you to raise your reputation amongst friends. And this leads us to the Cliff experience. Uh, Take us to this idea of impressing your mates. Well, that was something that I picked up at high school. That was a habit that I developed at high school, and it's very important to understand how we develop our habits that our thoughts, if we continue on with them, they will soon become a habit where we won't think about them. And the first group of people that I tried to impress impress was the bullies because I soon learned that if I impress them by doing something crazy and stupid and dangerous and very anti-society, they weren't hitting me. They were watching and laughing. And drinking was something that I took to like a fish to water, so to say. It came very natural to me. It came as something where even I was a little kid, I could drink. And it was some, I just considered it to be my gift. Mum and Dad had always told me that I had a gift. I'd always thought, well, this is it then. And so impressing them, but at the same time, Neil, and it's very important, at the same time I developed this issue of I'm not good enough. I've got to do something else for people to like me. They won't like me no matter who they are, good, bad, church people, bullies, whatever. I am not enough for them to like. I've got to do something to impress everybody all the time. And that's where that impression, that desire to impress people leaves you because if you feel that you have to impress, there's that feeling of I mustn't be good enough as I am. And then the crunch comes. Take us to age 21. You're at Phillip Island. Mm -hmm. You're there with your mates and there just happens to be a cliff to climb. Mm. I don't have a great recollection of that day, obviously because of the accident, but I know very well what happened. I've spoken to Dave and Rob, the two men who were there with me, quite extensively. And it appears to me, knowing what I've been through, because I've developed having a brain injury and being out of action for a long period of time develops insight and you start to question why you do everything, why everyone else does everything. You develop this knowledge And to me, I climbed that cliff. The reason I must have climbed that cliff, and I didn't fall off a cliff, I climbed a cliff and slipped at the top, and that's how I fell down. So it wasn't like I was on top and I slipped and fell. 
The reason why I did that, I believe, was because that habit that I developed at high school was still strong at 21. It was etched into my brain, and that was all about, I really like these guys. Gee, won't it be impressive if I climb this vertical, wet, moist cliff with alcohol in my system and no tread on my shoes? Won't that impress them? And that's what I believe is the reason why I climbed the cliff, and as you can see, it, it didn't work out so well. So you got towards the top of the cliff mm-hmm. and you slipped and you fell down the cliff mm-hmm. and you literally hit rock bottom. Yes, it's not a metaphor. It's a literal translation of what happened. And you rely then on your friends' accounts to tell you what happened next. Undoubtedly, they had to call emergency services. Uh, you would have been taken to hospital do you remember waking up in hospital and the feeling that you had when you recognised that this was not what you had anticipated with the idea of impressing your mates? It took me a long time, we're talking years, Neil, until I was able to get that sort of insight. I was way out of action, had a major, major brain injury, and then I had a stroke when I was in my coma. So a stroke on top of a major brain injury and major spinal injuries, my ability to consider what had happened. I didn't know who I was for months. I didn't recognise anybody for months. I would recognise the oddest person who I hardly knew who came to, ho- came to see me in hospital, but wouldn't recognise my own parents. So it was very much like that for a long period of time. And the reason I survived was because of what these two gentlemen did for me, giving me CPR at the base of a cliff. But I had no memory of that. I had no memory of anything well, I call it BC, before Cliff. I had no memory of anything BC. When I became aware of my surroundings when I was in hospital, I, my brain simply assumed that it was normal, that everything was okay because I had nothing to compare it with. So I just thought, well, I see people come, stay for a while and then leave, so it must be my turn soon. I must be getting ready to get up and leave. But I didn't leave for a long period of time and didn't actually know why I was there because even though people told me what had happened, I with my brain injury, I couldn't understand what they were saying and any words from anybody just confused me. So I was in a land of limbo for a long time after my accident. So it wasn't until years later that I actually was able to look back and quite to start to piece the puzzle. Stephen, we all know that if you fall down a cliff 30 metres and there are rocks at the bottom, you don't bounce. (laughs) No. But... In that time since you have begun to make a recovery, Mm -hmm. you've been able to talk about bouncing, Mm. bouncing back, because Mm. for a lot of people, when tragedy like this strikes, there is no bouncing back. Mm. Uh, Miraculously, you have been able to bounce back, and through our conversation today, we'll perhaps pick on some of those uh, issues of what it takes to bounce Mm. back. Do you see that there's anything special in you that somehow or other enabled you to bounce back when, when you know, no doubt there'll be others listening to our conversation today saying, I have a family member, I have a friend. They went through a dreadful accident or tragedy and they weren't able to bounce back. Is there something special in you, Stephen, or is there something you recognise in the purposes of God, that you've been able to bounce back, that you carry something of a message of encouragement 
for people who are going through times that are tragic, tough, when we talk about hitting rock bottom. Uh, what's so significant here? After I arrived home and close to a year after the accident and I realised that the injury, the extent of the injuries was much worse than what I'd hoped. You see, I had this level of motivation and being so motivated, it tends to help you overlook some of the real problems. And it wasn't until I actually got home that I realised that I can't really speak, I can't put sentences together, I can't read, I can't write, I can't understand. I can't. So I was in a position where life was, to me, that was the hitting rock bottom stage. That was the, it was not the accident, it was the realisation of just what had happened and what my future was going to be, especially when you're surrounded, and that would be something that people on the re- that are listening would understand. You're surrounded by people who wish you well, but are basically saying you can't get back from this. You're going to have to temper your entire life to do so. And to me, if you to bring God into the conversation, of course, is that I learned how to pray for one thing. Everybody was praying for a miracle and loss of pain, and I was in so much trouble, but I simply started to pray for strength. Pray for strength to get to through the next stage, even though the next stage might be the next minute, even though it might be dealing with pain, whatever it would be. And I learned to pray for that strength and rely solely on the strength that what was happening, God was with me, but I had fallen off the cliff. I had chosen to do it. It was a result of a lot of things that I've been doing for six or seven years before the accident that took me to that place. This was me understanding the results of what happens if you live a life like I, as, well, just as I lived. So praying for strength, but praying for strength to get, to be as well recovered to reach whatever potential you have in mind for me, God. And in the first three years, now I I taught myself how to read, how to write, how to speak, all those things that are in the book that you're talking about. But all of those things were daily events. So if you ask me if there's anything special about me, no, absolutely not. Except there's one thing. I worked all day, every day, for a long, long time, for 10 years, a 10 years rehab. That's the one special formula. I played the long game. I didn't expect to be cured the following day. I prayed for strength to help me get through the next day. But if I kept working the next day, I've got to eventually get better than what I am right now. And so working and failing and being mocked sometimes and feeling embarrassed and doing a lot of things like wetting myself and I'm standing up, vomiting all over people, vomiting all over myself, all of these things due to the stress and pain and anxiety, it was the 10 years. But that taught me how to be resilient and how to keep praying for strength. Just give me strength, God. Give me your strength. And that was what made the difference as far as I'm concerned. It's a very large story and a lot of things happened, but if you want me to pinpoint it into one, it was that. It was that every day, I can't go through this again. Every day I'll wake up with the hope that it was all a bad dream. But it wasn't. I had to go through it again every day. But over a period of time, I eventually got better at doing everything. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 
Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. You might have your own thoughts on bouncing back when you hit rock bottom. Uh, maybe your story is similar to Stephen's, although it's difficult to find stories that are harder to tell than this one. Uh, we're talking about the story of Stephen Dale falling down a 30-metre cliff. And as we mentioned, even lightheartedly, you don't bounce when you fall down a 30-metre cliff. We're talking about a hospital time and recovery in 10 years to get back to some of those things that we all take for granted. If we have mobility, if we have clarity of being able to think and strength in our mental health. Well, we're talking through some of these things today as we hear Stephen's story. Stephen, when you are at rock bottom, uh, the prognosis from the doctors, everyone saying you're not going to be able to recover, you'll have to rely on welfare and the care of friends and carers through the rest of your life. Uh, your family has come to a point where they've accepted the fact that you're always going to now be uh, someone who is going to be helped all the way through. Uh, what are your thoughts for when you are at a place where no one else has hope? Maybe then people are praying for a sort of maybe even a hollow miracle when they can see that you're lying there flat. What are your thoughts for getting up above the sort of ceilings that are set for you? Well, that's there's a lot of parts to that question, and one of them is that a lot of people are in a particular situation that there is going to be, they're not going to get back to where they were. And that was one thing that I, I had to accept because I was becoming this person that I did not know. Uh, my brain injury had done something to my personality and, and everything in it. But the, the greatest thing that I was being told was that my recovery after two years will be as high as it ever gets. Who you are in two years after the accident it was going to be a pinnacle. And when I came home, it had already been one of those two years. And I was, I was in serious trouble. I just living. I mean, the, all of these issues, let alone the depression and the panic and all those things. But this cognitive loss and this loss of a life where I was athletic, I was able to do a lot of things. I never had any problems with many things at all. Now I had problems with everything. While being told that, look, your injuries are very substantial. You're not going to get any better after two years. So to me, maybe it was because of the wonder of a brain injury. I didn't take what they said for real. I, I never believed them. In fact, I fought against them, and there are some people who are going to say that I attempted to hurt them by saying these things to, to me. Because to me, it was sort of like, I'm alive, I'm here right now. That's, all, that, that's the first thing. I am here. I should have got, I should have died. I had five heart attacks and only survived because people kept on panning on my chest. But I'm still here. And that was something that I learned when I was in hospital. And if I can briefly tell this story, because you see, this one thing happened once or twice in hospital, but stuck with me for those 10 years. And that was one of the doctors, one of the surgeon's helpers who comes and came and see me every morning. And he would come and see me and he would lift the blanket off of my feet and he would say he would look at me from the base of the bed he would grab my toes because I had spinal surgery and he would say Steve prove to me that you're still alive which meant that I had to shake my feet now my brain didn't know which foot to shake and I got that wrong but those words of waking up every morning at 6am with 
prove to me that you are still alive was something that I continued to repeat to myself as often as I could and as soon as I could every day. I'm still alive. There's still something that can be done. And that sentence and being closer to God, being drawn to God, brought me to this, you never know what's going to happen because I'm still alive. I'm still here. Every dark cloud has a silver lining, and I know listeners will be able to hear that there is something profound about these simple things that you're talking about when you've hit rock bottom. But when we talk about the silver lining on a dark cloud here, when you even anticipate a brain injury, you don't think that that is actually a positive. But if you had your full functions you would have recognized just how serious things were mm. and you would have been crushed by the overwhelming likelihood that you were not going to get better. But because you had this brain injury, you didn't believe any of that. <laughs> no. I mean, this is, uh, this is amusing at the same time as it is so profound that there is something significant about not believing all of the bad stuff. To me, that was simply their opinion. And I... Was not quite able to say it, as, but what I was trying to say to them every time they said this to me, Stephen, you can't do this. I was always trying to say, even though I had a very bad speech impediment at that time, saying, no, you're just saying that you can't do it. Every time you say to me that I can't do it, what it really means is you can't do it. Well, you don't have to do it, and I don't want you to do it. I'm, going to do, I'm still going to do it anyway. And the brain injury had many benefits. Number one... I could. I was just living in a world of denial, I guess, in to, to some degree. The other one was is that I realised that I could make any mistake. I could do anything. I could screw up anything. And I had the perfect excuse. Oh, I've got a brain injury. I could do anything. And it, it, it gave me this freedom to try everything, knowing that I was going to fail. But who cares if I fail because I've got a brain injury. And everybody around me was... So inspired by Stephen's trying, gee, he's such a good, but, but to me it was a bit of a joke. Well, let's, let's see how bad I can make this. But it helped my road to recovery because I constantly tried without fearing if I'm going to get it wrong. Stephen Dale, before the news, we were talking about the idea that sometimes if you have a brain injury, there is something of a silver lining on a dark cloud in that you don't really think as clearly or as logically as you might do if you had all your faculties. And that for you was an advantage. Now, when you are at rock bottom and you're contemplating how you even get out of this miry difficulty that you're in, uh, you're listening to voices. There's the voice of the doctors. There's the voice of your family. There's the voice of people who are helping you to somehow or other rehabilitate. And there's other voices also going on in your own head. Take us into the voices that are uh, are uh, trying to impact the way you think about recovery here. The voices that are inside your head are often the worst. They're the ones that you hear most often. They're the clearest and they're the most personal. And with me and with many other people I'm aware of that I've, that I've spoken to, those voices to me were very strongly leaning me towards suicide and hopelessness and darkness and that old thing, you're not good enough. 
No one's going to want you. If they didn't want you then, they're certainly not going to want you now. And besides, you fail at every single thing you do. And it just goes on and on and on. So there's a list of voices, as you were saying, Neil, that you can listen to. Now, when you've got a brain injury, one of the other silver linings, I guess, is that what you are, what's, what people say to you, you don't really recall and your brain doesn't really process it. What you do pick up, though, is you do get a voice from their face. You see what their, what their eyes are really saying, not what's coming out of their mouth. And so there are all these things that are always vying for you. To me, the only way that I could escape these voices or control which voice I listened to was number one was to, was to pray a lot for strength and guidance. And the second thing was to do some work was teaching myself how to read, how to write, how to speak. All of those things, once again, are in the book, and it took me a long time. But when I was focused on them, I wasn't being inundated with these internal voices. These internal voices and the negative voices from other people came more when I was trying to be involved with them, but when I wasn't working. When I was watching television, all of those things, these were the worst times. When I was actually doing something about it, when I was working on my own recovery, that's when my brain became clearest with just this little thing, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, and doing that on and on and on. If I took a break, I was smashed. All the voices, they all came back with a vengeance. But the more often that I moved those voices gently away the less frequently they returned. So you've got the voices speaking to you. Uh, you recognize that one voice needs to be louder than all the others if you are going to have uh, that capacity to be able to go to the next level. We heard that you had this particularly pointed prayer for strength. You needed some divine strength there's also the need for guidance. This was like a secondary prayer. Second to give me strength, God, uh, give me guidance because I don't know which way to go. Mm. Take us to this idea of guidance. The idea with guidance was very clear. No one knew anything about recovering from a brain injury. And in those days in 1989 and the early 90s, there was not the belief in the brain neuroplasticity. There was if you damage your brain, that's it. It never recovers. And because of the extent of which I've damaged my brain, I'll never recover. Once again, two years is my highlight, and after two years, I was still really struggling. So it was constantly praying, not only for strength, but also, how do I do this? What do I have to do? Just tell me what to do, God. Tell me what to do. But there was never a very clear instruction. There was just, just keep on asking me. Just keep on praying to me. Just keep on doing the little things. The idea of how to teach myself how to read, the idea of how to teach myself to speak and write that took a long period of time all came from, God, what do I have to do here? Because I couldn't get taught. I couldn't get tutored from somebody because of my brain injury. I couldn't process information. So if someone was trying to teach me something, I just go into a state of panic because my brain was saying, I don't want this information because I'm going to get it wrong, so keep it away from me. So I was pretty well fully dependent on me to do all of these things. I had to do them, but I had to pray for God's strength to, to do them. But it's a really important thing that, that you're asking me here, Neil, because one point that I really want to stress to people, 
and that is it's a multi for it, it, building a foundation is what it's all about. You work as hard as you can. Pray for God to give you as much strength to work as hard as you can. But you need a foundation because I was able to work really hard for 10 years and commit myself to that for 10 years. But I never had to think about food. I never had to think about where's the love coming from. I never had to think about where my friends are going to come from. All of these things were supplied by my wonderful family and the friends that remained that were always my foundation. If if I didn't have that, I couldn't have spent all that period of time. I had to worry about how am I going to get this because I want a job, but I wasn't going to miss out on food. I still had mum and dad giving me three square meals as well as snacks as well throughout the day. So if you've got to deal with all of those things, the thing that you first thing you've got to do is you've got to build a foundation and find out who's going to contribute to you. But while they do that, you've got to figure out how to contribute back to them. It's not a one-way street. Contributing to others is as much a part of any recovery as any work that you're going to do. So it's, it's a matter of getting those three things in balance and then doing the hard, hard work and not expecting someone else to do all the hard lifting for you. Steve, if we're bringing everyone into our conversation today and at some point in our lives we're all going to go through a a point where we're feeling like we're at rock bottom maybe our story won't be as severe as yours but whether it's a family member uh, whether it's some dysfunction within our family might be a marriage concern might be a loss of a job career is gone Uh, struggling with debt, all sorts of these issues that can take us to a point we're at rock bottom. And what you're describing there uh, just speaks volumes about how we care for one another. Because when you talk about your family, providing all of those absolute essentials so you could get a focus on what you had to do next to get to the next level, uh, that family support must have been so powerful. I can't help but think that it's important for us to be looking out for our family members who are going through times Mm. when they feel like they're at rock bottom so that they can take that next step out. When you're talking to groups, whether it's churches or businesses, you talk to a lot of corporate uh, uh, opportunities that want to hear your story, uh, you're finding that this is one of those things. This It's like a pastoral care that comes around so you can focus on the things that are important. Exactly. And if you don't have that foundation and you're doing it all by yourself or you're trying to do it all by yourself, the very best thing that I believe is going to happen is that you may recover, but it will take you two, three, four times longer. Being involved with other people, which is what today is all about. I'm very close to, I do a lot in in regard to mental health and you'd be surprised. Well, you wouldn't be surprised. How many mental health problems are coming because people aren't in a group? They don't have anything to do with other people, and they even withdraw. And when they withdraw, it's actually quite often a sign that, can someone please see that I'm withdrawing and ask me why I'm withdrawing? But when there's no one there to start off with, and you're spending your life texting and phoning and, and on, the, on the web, and you're not actually dealing face-to-face to people, you, you miss these cues. And when you miss these cues, understand that other people are missing them as well. So all of a sudden, people people are living a life of isolation now, even though they're in a group. That's another big discussion, but move away from isolation and move towards looking at people's 3D faces 
and talking with them, spending time with them, especially family members. I see so many fathers and mothers out with their kids, and while their kids doing everything to get their attention, their attention is all on their iPad or on their on their phone. And the kid, you can see the kid screaming, "Look at me! Play with me! Talk to me!" That is just another another reality to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that I was always surrounded by people, except when I needed to work hard for myself. But I was never alone where there was no one to talk to unless I decided I I can't talk to anybody. And I had a lot of problems with that throughout the years. But I knew that it was my choice to remain isolated. It was not because I had no other choice. Do you have to hit rock bottom to recognize that you need this support around you? Because when you're doing your own thing and taking you back to your age 21 experience, uh, separated, isolated, drinking heavily, impressing your mates, especially the bullies, uh, this idea of uh, isolation, when you actually are on that recovery trail, you do recognize that this is where the power of family, of community, uh, of pastoral care. I'm just thinking of people who might be listening into our situation now and uh, separated from a men's group. They say a men, mm. uh, you know, used to be part of a men's group, was great, had some good friends there, uh, you know, sharing some intimate details from time to time, getting strength from those other men who've been through similar sort of stuff. Women who tend to uh, talk more freely when they're in a group. But, you know, churches that have life group, connect group type situations where people get to meet with one another and intimately have these opportunities to rub shoulders and do life together. These sorts of things sound to be very powerful uh, opposed to this idea of isolation. This talks to us very strongly about the value of what a local church can bring into the life of someone Absolutely. Who's, who's going to the next level. Absolutely. And please, don't wait until you hit rock bottom until you start to want to bounce back. Please, don't wait for the moment when you've fallen off a metaphorical or a literal cliff until you decide to get close to your family or to attend a church or to get involved with other people who are there for you just as much as you're there for them. That's probably the biggest lesson that I learned. I let myself get so lost before I did anything. And this, the silver cloud, the silver lining to this cloud was that this accident brought me back. But gee, I wish I had been smarter and not had to go through that accident and that 10 years rehab and that total shift in life and that long, long-term unemployment and all of the problems that came from all of those issues. I wish I just had have just relaxed and just spoken to people, but that I had been wiser with who I spoke to. I spoke to the wrong people. I got opinions from the wrong people. And when I went to the wrong people, I told them half-truths. I didn't have the courage or the security of telling them exactly what was going on for fear that they would hurt me. So I'd tell them something that wasn't quite right, and they would give me the wrong advice towards the wrong thing. It just accelerated my problems. I just wish that I had of stay close to my family, stay close to my God, stay close to the churches, and other people as well at schools and at colleges, whatever, instead of trying to impress them and being a bully in doing so, because I had also become a bully. I had learned the only way to get through to these people who aren't going to access me, uh, accept me is to really just ram something home. And 
I just became a very difficult person to be around. I still had a soft heart, but I had built up this exterior because of fear of, I don't want you to hit me, so I'm going to be so super aggressive that you are never going to come at me first. All these layers get built over a period of time. It's never one thing. It's a combination of things, and you don't notice them until it's, well, too late. Steve, I can't help but thinking, and this is not by design that I set up uh, this opportunity to meet on this date. In fact, uh, we were juggling some dates and uh, we finally got you into the studio. (laughs) And uh, you might be surprised to know that on this day, a very historic day in Australia, because in Victoria today, uh, the very first people will apply to uh, undergo voluntary euthanasia. And uh, not drawing you into a political conversation here, except to say that there will be people who have been where you have been or are where you have been, feeling like they are at rock bottom, feeling like the only way that they can actually do something uh, to ease the pain uh, may be to make this application to uh, voluntary euthanasia that they can do in Victoria as of today. And, and as I say, this is not specifically set up, and uh, this is a question without notice uh, on your thoughts here. But people who feel like there is no hope, that they are at rock bottom, that there is no way of bouncing back, those are the sorts of people who may well choose to do something like voluntary euthanasia as Christians. Of course, we say that's all bad because it's God who gives us value. It's not for us to take our own lives. I wonder what your reflection might be for people who know someone or who is that person who feels like they are at rock bottom and no way out, and they're even contemplating what now Victoria is going to make as an opportunity or some sort of way that people can actually try and uh, ease their pain. Uh, what are your thoughts for uh, for having hope when things seem hopeless? Well, the idea of euthanasia and having first-hand account of people who are in a position where there is no bouncing back, when they've got something which is so terrible and so much pain and so much difficulty. So there are so many different levels to this question, Neil, but... The first thing that came to my mind is that life is precious, full stop. As soon as you wonder whether your own life is precious, it's a downhill slide. Now, it depends on a whole lot of reasons as to why people would even consider that. And hopefully, the people who are in this bureau are hoping to have certain understandings of the people that can choose that because if people are choosing that simply because of mental health issues or because of loneliness or long-term unemployment or homelessness or whatever, euthanasia is not something that I would suggest. If it's to do with, if it's to do with, with that, if it's to do with people, it's, you know, you, as you said, you sprung that question on me and I, I don't have a prepared answer apart from I have met many people and I was one of them where I wanted out. There were times when the pain was so great and the hope was gone when I allowed the hope to leave and I just wanted out and I considered maybe I need to have a euthanasia experience or well, at my own hand. If I had have done that, I would have missed out 
on all of the incredible things that have come to me since then. I would have missed out. I mean, first of all, I had the accident. I'm now a man that I like. I like who I am. I like who I do. I've got a wonderful, wonderful wife. All of these things came about one way or another because I had an accident and it changed who I was. There have been other times that I alluded to before we came on air where I really struggled and I I considered finishing my life because the pain and the hope was gone. The pain was too strong and the hope was gone. But thankfully, I survived and I, I am now experiencing this wonderful life that did not even seem to be a possibility back then. And I'm a very positive thinker. But I was thinking positively, if I'm positive, this, this is as bad as it gets. And the other issue, which I think comes into this, is that when I was at my darkest, it, these were days when I didn't want to fight that day. I'd had enough of fighting. I felt like I'd been fighting all my life. I'm tired and I don't see a victory in sight. That was when I got to my darkest, when I had given up the hope, when I thought, I'm just too tired, I can't do it anymore. Thankfully, those attempts of mine were not successful, and things were, people came into my life and events occurred that I never could have possibly seen coming at that time until later on, and all of a sudden I've got this life. Where did this wonderful life come from? And I shudder with the idea of what happens if I had have ended it too soon? What happens if I had have not worked so hard for so long? What happens if I had have given up despite the fact that every cell in my body said, give up, the fight's over, just stop? I would have missed out on all this. When you say it's this idea of when you get to a point where you think that your life is not precious... And those things like euthanasia become an option. This just reinforces just how important it is mm. for us as Christian believers to always be able to encourage one another that we are precious. Precious in God's sight. Uh, not precious in your own sight. Uh, that's got all sorts of difficulties. Precious in God's sight takes it beyond ourselves mm. and gives us an eternal preciousness that also contributes into the hope that we have because we are precious to God, that he has a purpose for us, and therefore we have this hope, which really is the answered prayer when you pray for strength. It was extraordinary the fact that when those moments came, I had also isolated myself. This is a very predictable plan. You isolate yourself you stop working, you stop trying to improve something or you stop trying to reach out to people, that's when these things come. So the obvious solution is to be involved with other people, to allow people to contribute to you, but you contribute to other people while you listen to the voices that are in your mind. But it's also the God element. I knew that there were, had been several times when I was not supposed to be here, but God, for whatever reason, had a plan that said, you stay here. I've got something in mind for you, the Jeremiah 29.11. I've got something in mind for you. I've got a plan for you. It's going to be tough, but that plan is going to be worth all of this trouble that you're going through right now. Just lean on me and I'll take you through this point. Stephen, we've run out of time. <laughs> I wish we had another hour to talk. Uh, we don't. But I do want to point listeners to get a hold of your book. And your book is called Bouncing Back When You Hit Rock Bottom. 
And I might say that Stephen started a organization called Smiling Tiger back in 2002 and since then has taught and trained individuals and businesses throughout Australia how to overcome their professional and personal obstacles to manage their environment, to achieve their goals, regardless of how powerful those obstacles may be. Now, you can get a hold of Stephen's book and you can get it from his website, you could simply Google Bouncing Back When You Hit Rock Bottom, Stephen Dale, uh, but you could go straight to the website smilingtiger.com.au, smilingtiger.com.au. Stephen Dale, uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, just a privilege to be able to hear your story, and I know that listeners will have hung on every word. Thank you so much for taking some time to My share pleasure. these with Thank us today. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.